Chapter One of the Huguenot: A Tale of the French Protestants by G. P. R. James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Huguenot: A Tale of the French Protestants, Volumes One to Three by G. P. R. James. Volume One, Chapter One the hero, his friend, and his dwelling in the seventeenth century. There is a small town in one of the remote provinces of France, about ten miles from the seashore, and two or three hundred from the capital, on the appearance of which it may be as well to dwell for a short time, noticing not alone its houses and its streets as they appeared in the seventeenth century, but its inhabitants, their feelings, and their customs at that period were we not to make this formal sort of presentation the reader would feel as if set down suddenly amidst a crowd of strangers with no one to introduce him with no one to unpadlock the barrier which the cautious laws of society set up between man and man to guard against the wild beast propensities of the race of intellectual tigers to which we belong now however if we manage skilfully the reader may become as familiar with the people of another day and scenes of another land as if they had been the playfellows of his childhood and the haunts of his youth and may go on calmly with those to whom he is thus introduced through the dark and painful events which are recorded in the pages that follow that part of france in which our scene is laid presents features which differ very much from the dull and uninteresting aspect of the land from calais to paris and from paris to the mountains of switzerland the route generally pursued by our travelling countrymen whether they go forth to make what is usually called the grand tour or content themselves with idling away a long space of misspent time amongst the helvetian mountains in the district that i speak of the face of the country though it cannot perhaps be called mountainous is richly varied running up into occasional high and pointed hills presenting frequent masses of rock and wood diversified by a mile or two here and there of soft pasture and meadow with innumerable streams some calm and peaceful some fierce and torrent-like some sparkling and playful giving an air of life and glad activity to the land through which they flow these manifold streams shed also a hue of indescribable verdure a fresh leafiness of aspect that is most grateful to the eye and though there is not there as in our own land the frequent hedgerow with its sweet village associations yet there is no want of high umbrageous trees scattered here and there besides the thick woods that in many places occupy several leagues in extent and the lesser copses that nest themselves in many a dell the district that we speak of is bright in its skies and warm in its sunshine though it is not precisely in the region of the richest vine and there are scarcely five days during six months of the year in which on every stony bank or on the short soft turf above the large lizards may not be seen basking in their coats of green and gold there are not indeed the cloudless skies of italy which notwithstanding their splendid colouring are insipid from their very cloudlessness no but wreathed in grand masses by the free air sometimes drifting from the british channel sometimes sweeping from the wide western ocean 
the clouds and the sunshine sport together in the heaven while the shadow and the light chase each other over the earth below and ever and anon comes down a passing shower refreshing the lands it lights upon and leaving them brighter than before on the top of one of the tall rocky hills we have mentioned in very remote feudal times for we find it mentioned in all the wars undertaken by the edwards and the henrys in their vain endeavours to grasp a crown that did not belong to them a town had been built and fortified circumscribed by large stone walls flanked by round towers and crowned by the square keep of a castle only one wall of which has been left for now near a century and a half this town was of small size occupying nothing but the summit of the hill and was strictly confined within the walls and indeed below on three sides were such steep ascents in some places showing precipitous spaces of rude rock and in others covered with short green slippery turf that it was scarcely possible for the inhabitants to have built beyond the walls except on one side even if they had been so inclined in such times of danger however it had been the object of those who possessed the town to keep that fourth side by which the ascent was more easy clear from all houses and buildings of any kind so that the quarrels from the crossbow the arrows from the bow or the balls from the cannon as different ages brought different inventions might sweep down unimpeded upon any approaching enemy and that the eye might also have a free range to discover the approach of a foe thus that gentler slope was not even broken by a road till the end of the sixteenth century the way up to the town from the valley below being constructed with great skill and care upon one of the steepest sides of the hill by means of wide short platforms each of which was defended by some particular fortification of its own while the whole line of the valley and the lower part of the road were commanded by the cannon of the castle of st anne a rude old fortress on an inferior hill of little or no use to any persons but those who possessed the higher and more important works above through the valley and winding round the foot of the hill of st anne was a wide clear beautiful stream navigable up to that spot and falling into the sea at the distance of ten or twelve miles in a direct line but which contrived to extend its course by the tortuous path that it pursued amongst the hills to a length of nearly twenty leagues such as we have described was the situation in feudal times of the small town that we shall call Moiseuil. but to ere the commencement of our tale those feudal times had passed away even during the wars of the league the town had remained in tranquillity and repose it was remote from the general scene of strife and although it had sent out many who aided and not insignificantly in upholding the throne of henry the fourth there was but one occasion on which the tide of war flowed near its walls and then speedily retreated and left it unassailed under these circumstances fortifications were soon neglected precautions were no longer taken the cannon for half a century remained upon the walls unused rust and honeycomb began to gnaw into the heart of the iron sheds were erected in the embrasures houses succeeded gardens were laid out in the round towers the castle of st anne fell utterly into ruins and some of the patriotic and compassionate inhabitants thought it a hard tax upon the sinews of the horses who in those days carried from place to place the merchandise of the country 
to be forced to climb the zigzag path of one of the more precipitous sides of the hill. Thus, in the early part of the reign of Louis the Thirteenth, a petition was addressed by the inhabitants to their count, who still retained all his feudal rights and privileges, beseeching him to construct or permit the construction of a gate upon the southern side of the town, and a road down the easier descent. The Count, who was a good-humoured man, a nobleman of the school of Henry the Fourth, and as fond of the people of the good town as they were of him, was quite willing to gratify them in any reasonable desire. But he was the more moved to do what they wished in the present instance, inasmuch as some ten or fifteen years before he had himself broken through the old rules and regulations established in the commune, and not only built himself a chateau beyond the walls of that very side, but laid out a space of two or three acres of ground in such a manner as to give him shade when he wanted it, and sunshine when the shade was not agreeable. Of the chateau we shall speak hereafter, but it is only here necessary to say that in building this dwelling beyond the walls, the Count of Morsoy of that day had forgotten altogether the possibility of carrying a road down that side of the hill, he had constructed a way for himself into the town by enlarging an old postern in the walls, which he caused to open into his garden, and by this postern, whenever he sought to issue forth into the country beyond, he took his way into the town, traversed the square, and followed the old zigzag road down the steep side of the hill. The peasantry, indeed, had not failed to think of that which their lord had overlooked, and when they had a dozen or two of pigeons, or a pair of fowls, or a fat calf to present to the seigneur, they almost invariably brought it by the slope up the hill. A path had thus been worn from the valley below in the precise direction which was best fitted for the road, and whenever the good townsmen presented their petition to the count, it instantly struck him how very convenient such a road would be to himself as well as to them. Now the count was neither a cunning nor an ungenerous man, and the moment he saw that the advantage to be derived would be to himself, he determined to open the gate and make the road at his own expense, without subjecting the commune or the peasantry to corvée or fine. He told the inhabitants so at once, and they, as they well might be, were grateful to him in consequence. He made the road, and a handsome one it was, and he threw down a part of the wall, and erected a splendid gate in its place. He gave no name, indeed, to either, but the people immediately and universally bestowed a name on both, and called them the Count's Gate and the Count's Road, so that the act was perpetuated by the grateful memory of those whom it benefited. As, following the example of the earth on which we live, every living thing upon its surface moves forward, or perhaps we may say appears to move forward, while very likely it is going but in a circle, the opening of the gate and the making of the road were speedily followed by another step, which was the building of houses by the roadside, so that, at the period when our tale commences, the whole aspect, appearance, and construction of the town was altered. A long street with gardens at the back of the houses extended all the way down the gentle slope of the hill. The gate had been widened, the summit had been cleared of a great number of small houses, and a view was opened straight up into a fine, gay-looking market square at the top, with the ruined wall of the old keep, raising its high head covered with ivy on the western side, and to the north the little church, with its tall, thin-slated spire rising high, 
not only above the buildings of the town itself, but the whole of the country round, and forming a remarkable object which was seen for many leagues at sea. We are in this account supposing the reader to be looking up the street, which was turned towards the south, and was consequently full of sunshine towards the middle of the day. It would, indeed, have been intolerably hot in the summer, had it not been that the blessed irregularity of the houses contrived to give some shade at every hour of the four-and-twenty. But from the bottom of that street, almost up to the top, was to be seen, upon the left hand, rising above the buildings of the street itself, the weathercocks, the round turrets, and pointed roofs and loopholes and windows innumerable, which marked the chateau built by the Count who had constructed the road, while here and there, too, were also seen the tops of the tall limes and elms with which he had shaded his garden, and which had now grown up into tall, splendid trees, flourishing in the years which had brought him to decay and death. Into the little town of Mosay had been early introduced the doctrines of Calvin, and the inhabitants clung to those doctrines with peculiar pertinacity. They had constantly sent volunteers to the Protestant army, they had bestirred themselves in aid of La Rochelle, and had even dispatched succour to the Protestants of the far south. The weak, bigoted and treacherous Louis the Thirteenth had declared that they were the most obstinate heretics in his dominions, and had threatened against them many things, which the wisdom of his great minister had prevented him from performing. But the Counts of Marseille themselves had at all times rendered great services to the state, they had proved themselves on all occasions gallant and determined soldiers and skilful politicians, and though they too held firm by the religion of their ancestors, and set equally at defiance both threats and seductions, which conduct formed the strongest link between them and their people, Richelieu had judged that it would be hazardous to drive them into open resistance to the crown. We may indeed surmise that he judged it unnecessary also, inasmuch as there can be no doubt that in his dealings with the Huguenots he treated them solely as a political party, and not as a religious sect. Such being the case, though somewhat courting the persecutions of the times, the town of Mosseuil had been left unmolested in the exercise of its religious tenets, and had enjoyed not only all the liberty which was granted to the Protestants of France by the Edict of Nantes, but various other privileges obtained perhaps by a little encroachment, and retained by right of prescription. The inhabitants were a hardy and determined race, frank and good-humoured, and possessing from various points in their position a great degree of simplicity in manners and character, mingled with much religious fervour. They had indeed of late years been somewhat polished, or perhaps one might call it corrupted. They had acquired more wants and more wishes from the increasing luxuriousness of the day, had heard with wonder, and not perhaps without some longing, of the splendours and the marvels and the gaieties of the court of Louis the Fourteenth, then in the bright and butterfly days of its youthful ostentation. And they felt strongly and beneficially the general impulse given to every sort of commerce by the genius of Colbert, and applied themselves to derive the utmost advantage therefrom by pursuing with skill, activity, and perseverance various manufactures, in which they displayed no small ingenuity. A good number of them had become wealthy, and all of them indeed were well off in the station of life in which they were placed. 
The artisan was rich for an artisan, as well as the burgess for a burgess, and they were all simple in their habits, not without their little pride, or without their luxuries on a holiday, but frugal and thoughtful as they were industrious. Such was the town of Mosseux and its inhabitants in the year 1680 blank. We must now turn to the chateau of the Count, and to its denizens at the time of the opening of our tale. The chateau was built, as we have said, on the outside of the walls of the town, and was one of those odd buildings of which many a specimen has come down to us. It seemed to have been built by detached impulses, and upon no general plan, though, to admit nothing but the truth, the construction was attributable all to one person. The great hall was a long, wide-spreading piece of architecture, with a high roof and a row of windows turned to the south side, which was the front of the chateau. Then came two or three square masses of stonework on either side of the hall, with the gables projecting to the front, no two of them of the same height and size, and many of them separated either by a tall round tower with loopholes all the way up, like buttonholes in the front of a waistcoat, or broken towards the roof by a turret stuck on and projecting from the rest of the building. On the western side of the chateau was a large square tower with numerous windows placed with some degree of regularity, and on the eastern was an octangular tower containing a separate entrance of a somewhat gothic character. Two large wings projected behind towards the town on which the chateau unceremoniously turned its back, and the large open space of ground thus enclosed was again divided into two by a heavy transverse mass of building, as irregular as the external parts of the whole. The mansion was completed by the stables and offices for the servants and retainers, and the whole was pitched in the centre of a platform, which had formerly been one of the bastions of the town. Behind the chateau and between the building and the walls were numerous trees giving that space the name of the Bocage, and through this lay the little walk that led to the postern, which was originally the only exit from the chateau. In front was a tolerably wide esplanade, extending to the edge of the bastion, and from the edge of the terrace descended a flight of steps to the slope below, on which had been laid out a flower garden, separated from the rest of the ground by a stone wall, surmounted by flower-pots in the shape of vases. The remaining portion of the space enclosed was planted, according to the taste of that day, with straight rows of trees, on the beauties of which it is unnecessary to dwell. The interior of the castle was fitted up in the taste of the reign of Henry the Fourth and Louis the Thirteenth. few changes having taken place since the time it was first furnished, immediately after it was built. Some of the rooms, indeed, contained the furniture of an older castle formerly inhabited by the Counts, which furniture was of a much more remote age, and had been condemned by scornful posterity to the dusty oblivion which we so fondly pile upon our ancestors. It may be as well, however, to conduct the reader into one of the rooms of, of that chateau, and, telling him that we have ourselves sat therein, furnished exactly as it was then furnished, and looking exactly as it then looked, endeavour to make him see it as the glass of memory now gives it back to us. It was a large oblong room, with a vaulted roof, not dome-shaped indeed, for it was flat at the top, but from the walls towards the centre it sloped for a considerable way before it received the flattened form which we mention. 
It was indeed a four-sided vault, with the top of the arches cut off. On two sides were windows, or perhaps we should call them casements, with the glass set in leaden frames, and opening only in part. The hearth and chimney were of enormous dimensions, with a seat on either side of the fireplace, which was a sort of raised platform of brickwork, ornamented with two large andirons, grinning with lions' heads for the reception of the fuel. Over the chimney again was a wide slab of marble, supported by two marble scrolls and a tablet, on which was recorded, with very tolerable latinity, that that chateau had been built by Francis, Count of Mosay, in the year of grace 1590. Above this marble, far blacker than the dark oak panelling which supported it, hung an immense ebony frame, carved with a thousand curious figures and containing a large round mirror of polished metal, reflecting, though in a different size, all the objects that the room contained. On the two sides of the chamber were one or two fine portraits by Rubens and Van Dyck, also in ebony frames, but cursed with an internal border of gold. A multitude of high-backed chairs, only fitted for men in armour, and ladies with whalebone bodices, four cabinets of ebony, chequered with small lines of inlaid ivory, with immense locks marked out by heavy but not inelegant silver shields, and two or three round tables, much too small for the size of the room, made up the rest of the furniture of the apartment, if we accept some curious specimens of porcelain, and one or two curiosities brought by different members of the family from foreign lands. There was also a lute upon one of the tables, and ten long glasses with a vein of gold in their taper stalks, ranged in battle array upon the mantelpiece. The moment at which we shall begin our tale was about the hour of dinner in the province, at that period a very different hour from that at which we dine in the present day. The windows were all open, the bright sunshine was pouring in and throwing the small square panes into lozenges upon the flooring and from that room which was high up in the castle might be seen as widespread and beautiful a landscape as ever the eye rested upon. A world of verdure, streams and woods and hills with this bright sky above. Such was the chamber and its aspect at the period that we speak of, and we must now turn to those who inhabited it, and, in the first place, must depict them to the reader's eye before we enter into any remarks or detailed account of their several characters, which, perhaps, we may be inclined to give in this instance, even while we admit that in general it is far better to suffer our personages to develop themselves and tell their own tale to the reader. In all there were some seven persons in that room, but there were only two upon whom we shall at present pause. They were seated at a table in the midst, on which were spread forth various viands, in abundance upon plates of silver of a rich and handsome form, while a profusion of the same metal in the shape of cups, forks and spoons, and lavers appeared upon another table, near, which had been converted into a temporary sort of buffet. Ranged on the same buffet was also a multitude of green glass bottles, containing, apparently, by their dusty aspect and well-worn corks, several kinds of old and choice wine, and five servants in plain but rich liveries, according to the fashion of that day, bustled about to serve the two superior persons at the table. Those two persons were apparently very nearly of the same age, about the same height, and in corporeal powers they seemed almost evenly matched, 
but in every other respect they were as different as can be well conceived. The one who sat at the side of the table farthest from the door was a man of about six or seven and twenty years of age, with a dark brown complexion, clear and healthy, though not florid, and with large, full, deep-coloured grey eyes, fringed with long black lashes. His hair and moustaches were jet black, and the character of his countenance, for the moment at least, was serious and thoughtful. He was evidently a very powerful and vigorous man, deep-chested, long in the arm, and though at first look his form seemed somewhat spare, yet every motion displayed the swelling of strong muscles called into action, and few there were in that day who could have stood unmoved a buffet from his hand. Such was Albert, Count of Mosset, an officer so distinguished during the first wars of Louis the Fourteenth that it is only necessary to name him to bring to the reader's recollection a long train of splendid actions. Opposite to him sat a friend and comrade, who had gone through many a campaign with him, who had shared watchings and dangers and toils, had stood by his side with him in the imminent deadly breach, and who was very much beloved by the Count, although the other often contrived to tease and annoy him, and sometimes to give him pain, by a certain idle and careless levity, which had arisen amongst the young nobles of France some twenty years before, and had not yet been put out by that great extinguisher, the courtly form and ceremony which Louis the Fourteenth placed upon every movement of the imagination. The friend was, as we have said, very different from his host, although not more than a year younger than the Count. He had a less manly look, which might perhaps be owing to the difference of colouring, for he was of that fair complexion which the pictures of Van Dyke have shown us can be combined with great vigour and character of expression. His features were marked and fine, his hazel eye piercing and quick, and his well-cut lip, varying indeed with every changing feeling or momentary emotion, still gave, by the peculiar bend in which it was fashioned when in repose, a peculiar tone of scornful playfulness to every expression his countenance assumed. In form he appeared at first sight more powerful perhaps than the Count, but a second glance was sufficient to show that such was not the case, and though there was indeed little difference, if anything, it was not in his favour. We must pause for an instant to notice the dress of the two friends, not indeed to describe poor points or paint rich lace, but speak of their garments as the taste thereof might be supposed to betoken some points in the character of each. The dress of the Count de Mousseux was in taste of the day, which was certainly as bad a taste, as far as it affected the habiliments of the male part of the human race, as could be devised. But he had contrived, by the exercise of his own judgment, in the colouring, to deprive it of a part of its frightfulness. The hues were all deep-toned, but rich and harmonious, and though there was no want of fine lace, the ribbons, which were then the reigning mode of the day, were reduced to as few in number as any Parisian tailor would consent to withhold from the garb of a high nobleman. His friend, however, the Chevalier d'Evron, having opinions of his own to which he adhered with wilful pertinacity, did not fully give in to the fashion of the times, and retained as far as possible, without making himself a spectacle, the costume of an earlier period. If we may coin a word for the occasion, there was a good deal of Van Dykism still about it. All the colours, too, were light and sunshiny, philomot and blue, and pink and gold. 
The jewels were not wanting, nor rich lace where they could be worn with taste, for though the liking was for splendour and for a shining and glittering appearance, yet in all the arrangements there was a fine taste visibly predominant. Such, then, was the general appearance of the two friends, and after partaking of the good things which both the table and the buffet displayed, for during the meal itself the conversation was brief and limited to a few questions and answers, the chevalier turned his chair somewhat more towards the window, and gazing out over the prospect which was spread forth before his eyes, he said, "'And so, Albert, this is Morceau, and here thou art again after an absence of six years.' "'Even so, Louis,' replied the Count, "'even so.' This is Morsay, and I know not whether it be from that inherent love of the place in which some of our happiest days have been spent, or whether the country round us be in reality more lovely than any other that I have seen since I left it, yet just when you spoke I was thinking of asking you whether you were, or were not, satisfied with my boasted Morsay. It may well be lovelier than any you have seen since you left it, replied the Chevalier, for, as far as I know, aught of your history, and I think I could account for every day of your life since last you were here. You have seen nothing since but the flat prettiness of the Beauvoises, the green spinage plate of the Cambrises, or the interminable flats of Flanders, where plains are varied by canals, and the only eminence to be seen for forty miles round one is the top of a windmill. Well may Morsay be prettier than that, and no great compliment to Morsay either, but I will tell you something more, Albert. I have seen Morsay long ago. I and sat in these halls and drank of that wine, and looked out of that window, and thought then, as I think now, that it is, indeed, as fair a land as ever I should wish to cast my eyes on. Indeed, Louis, exclaimed his companion, how happens it then, if you know the place so well, that you have listened to all my praises thereof, and come hither with me, purposely to see it, without giving me one hint that you knew of the existence of such a place upon the surface of the globe. "'Why, it has happened for two causes,' replied the Chevalier, "'and perhaps from three. In the first place, did you never discover that I have the gift of secrecy in a very high degree?' "'Why, I have certainly discovered,' replied the Count with a smile, "'that you are fond of a mystery, and sometimes, Louis, when there is no great need for one.' "'Most cuttingly and ungenerously answered,' replied the Chevalier with a laugh, "'but granting the fact, as a man does when he denies it strenuously in his mind all the time, "'but granting the fact, was not that one good and efficient cause for my not saying a word about it? "'And in the next place, Albert, if I had told you I had been here, "'and knew it very nearly as well as you do yourself, "'it would have deprived you of the whole pleasure of relating the wonders and marvels of Mosset.' which would have been most ungenerous of me, seeing and knowing the delight you took therein. And perhaps there might be another cause, he added in a graver tone. Perhaps I might hesitate to talk to you, Albert, to you, with whom filial affection is not the evanescent thing that weeps like an April shower for half an hour over the loss of those we love, and then is wafted away in sparkling and in light. I might have hesitated, I say, to speak with you of times when one whom you have loved and lost sat in these halls and commanded in these lands. I thank you, Louis, replied the Count. I thank you from my heart, but you might have spoken of him. My memory of my dead father is something different from such things in general. 
It is the memory of him, Louis, and not of my own loss, and therefore, as every thought of him is pleasing, satisfying, ennobling to my heart, as I can call up every circumstance in which I have seen him placed, every word which I have heard him speak, every action which I have seen him perform, with pride and pleasure and advantage, I love to let my thoughts rest upon the memories of his life, and though I can behold him no more living, yet I may thus enable myself to dwell with him in the past. We may be sure, Louis, that those who try to banish the loved and departed from their thoughts and from their conversation have more selfishness in their love, have more selfishness in their sorrow, than real affection or than real esteem. The pangs which draw tears from us over the tomb may be permitted to us as a weakness, not unenviable. A lapse of sorrow for the broken tie and the loss of immediate communion is also but a just tribute to ourselves and to the gone. But those who really love the dead, and justly love them, will cherish memory for their sakes, while those whose love was weak, or not founded on esteem, or selfish, may well give up a time to hopeless sorrow, and then banish the painful memory from the mind for ever. But it shows either that there must have been something wrong in the affection of the past, or a want of hope in the eternal meeting of the future. No, no, Louis, I live with my dead father every hour. I call to mind his looks, his words, his gestures, and I never think to meet a man who could speak one evil word of him. I never fear to hear him mentioned, and to dwell upon his name. The chevalier was silent for a moment, for the feelings of his companion were too hallowed for a jest. But he replied immediately after, I believe you are quite right, Albert, but to banish all serious themes which you know do not suit me, my love of mystery, which, as you well know, is a part of my nature, was quite sufficient to prevent my mentioning the subject. I wonder I was fool enough to let the whole secret out now. I should only have told you, by rights, just enough to excite your curiosity, in order that I might then disappoint you. As you have gone so far, however, replied the Count with a smile, you may as well tell the whole story at once, as it must be told sooner or later, I suppose. On my word, I do not know whether I can make up my mind to such unusual frankness, answered the Chevalier. I have already done quite enough to lose my reputation. However, as you seem anxious... Not in the least, answered the Count. I am quite satisfied. I was so before, and am so still, and shall be so if you resolutely maintain your mystery, concluding that you have some good reason for doing so. Oh, no, answered the Chevalier. I never had a good reason for anything I did in my life. I make a point of never having one, and the very insinuation of such a thing will make me unravel the whole matter at once, and show you that there is no mystery at all in the matter. You may have heard, perchance, that the Duc de Rouvray, who, by the way, is just appointed governor of the province, has a certain property with a certain chateau called Ruffini, which... "'Which marches with my own,' exclaimed the Count. "'Exactly what I was going to say,' rejoined the Chevalier. "'A certain property called Ruffini, which marches with your own, "'and a chateau thereupon some five leagues hence. "'Now the excellent Duke, being an old friend, "'and distant relation indeed of my family, "'it is scarcely possible, with common decency, "'for me to be more than ten years at a time without visiting him. "'And accordingly, about ten years ago, I, being then a sprightly youth, shortly about to fit on my first arms, 
came down and spent the space of about a month in that very chateau of Ruffini, and the duke brought me over here to dine with your father and hunt the wild boar in the woods behind St. Anne. "'It is very odd,' said the Count. "'I have no recollection of it.' "'How should you?' demanded his friend, "'as you were then gone upon your first campaign, "'under Dura, upon the Rhine. "'It was not, in all probability, "'worth your father's while to write you word "'that a young scapegrace had been brought to dine with him "'and had run his couteau de chasse "'up to the hilt in the boar's gullet. "'Oh, now I remember,' exclaimed the Count. "'I heard of that, but I forgot the name.' "'Have you not been here since then?' "'Not I,' replied the Chevalier. "'The Duke asked me, indeed, to return the following year, "'but something prevented him from returning himself, "'and I believe he has never come back to Ruffini since. "'A man who has so many castles as he has "'cannot favour any one of them above once in six or seven years or so.' "'He is coming down now, however,' replied the Count, "'for, of course, the affairs of his government must bring him here.' "'if it be but to hold the states.' "'Aye, but he does not come to Ruffini,' replied the Chevalier. "'He goes to Poitiers. "'I know all about his movements, and I'll tell you what, Mosset. "'Take care how you go to visit him at Poitiers, "'for you might chance not to come back unscathed.' "'How so?' demanded the Count, turning sharply as if with some surprise. "'Is there anything new against us poor Huguenots?' "'Pooh! I spoke not of that,' replied the Chevalier. "'You sectarians seem to have a sort of hereditary feeling of martyrdom in you, "'as if your chief ancestor had been St. Bartholomew himself, "'and the saint, being skinned alive, had given the world a skinless posterity, "'which makes them all feel alarmed, lest anyone should touch them. "'It is an ominous name, St. Bartholomew, you must acknowledge, "'to the ears of a Huguenot,' replied the Count." "'But what is it I have to fear, if not that, Louis?' "'What is it you have to fear?' rejoined the Chevalier. "'Why, a pair of the brightest eyes in all France. "'I believe I might say, in all Europe.' "'The Count shook his head with a smile. "'Well, then,' replied the Chevalier, "'a pair of lips that look like twin roses, "'eyebrows that give a meaning to every lustrous look of the eyes, "'a hand small, white and delicate, "'with fingers tapering and rounded,' like those with which the Venus of the Greeks gathers around her timid form the unwilling drapery, a foot such as no sandal-shod goddess of the golden age could match, and a form which would have left the sculptor nothing to seek in other beauties but herself. The Count laughed aloud. I am quite safe, he said. Quite safe, Louis, quite safe. I have nothing on earth to fear. Indeed, exclaimed his companion in the same gay tone, "'Pray, what panoply of proof do you possess sufficient to resist such arms as these when brought against you?' "'Mine is twofold,' answered the Count. "'In the first place, your own enthusiasm cannot be misunderstood, "'and, of course, I do not become the rival of my friend. "'Our great hero, Condé, has set all soldiers a better example.' "'What, then, do you intend to follow his example in regard to the Châtillon?' demanded the Chevalier. "'To yield me the lady, and, as soon as I am comfortably killed off, make love to my widow? "'But no, no, Albert. I stand not in your way. "'There are other attractions for me, I tell you fairly. "'Even if it were not so, let every man in love, as in war, do the best for himself. "'But, at all events, I tell you, take care of yourself if you go to Poitiers, "'unless, indeed, you have some better armour 
than the thought of rivalry with me. I must go to Poitiers, of course, replied the Count, when the governor comes down, but yet I shall go without fear, as I think you might by this time know. Have you not seen me amongst the fairest and the gayest and the sweetest of this world's daughters? And yet I do not think in all the catalogue you could find one cabalistic name sufficiently powerful to conjure up a sigh from my lips. Why, to say the truth, replied the Chevalier, I have often thought you as cold as a cannonball before it is fired. But then, my dear Count, all that time you have had something else to do, something to excite, to interest, and to engross you. But now the stir and bustle of the camp is over. The march, the countermarch, the advance, the retreat is done. The fierce excitement of the battlefield does not bring forth all the energies of a fiery heart. The trumpet no longer calls you from the ear of the fair one, before the whispered tale of love be well begun. In this piping time of peace, why, man, you have nothing for it but to make love, or die of melancholy. If you have a charm, let us hear what it is. Oh, I am no man of mysteries, replied the Count, and my tale is very soon told. It is just five years ago. I was at that time in the heyday of all sorts of passions, in love, I believe, with everything in woman's form that came in my way when, after spending the winter in Paris, I came down here to take leave of my father before joining the army in Flanders. It seemed as if he felt that we were parting for the last time, for he gave me many a caution and many a warning regarding the woman that I might choose for my wife. He exacted no promise indeed, nor gave his counsels in shape of a command. But amongst other injunctions, which I would most unwillingly violate, he strongly advised me never to wed any one of a different religious creed from myself. About the same time, however, a little incident occurred which fancy worked up so strongly as to have had an effect upon my whole after-feelings. You know the deep and bowery lanes and roads about the place, how beautifully the sunshine streams amongst them, how richly the song of the birds sounds in the trees above. How full of a sparkling and fanciful light is the whole scenery round us when we dive into its depths. I was always fond of wandering through these scenes, and one day about that time I was out alone, at some distance beyond the castle of St. Anne's, when suddenly, as I was musing and gazing and drinking in, as it were, the sights and sounds around me, I heard the cry of dogs and the sound of horns. But they were distant and they passed away, and I went on wandering slowly, with my horse's bridle hanging loosely over my arm, till suddenly I heard the sound of galloping hoofs, and immediately after, down the little road in which I was, came a gay wild horse of the Limousin, with a fair girl upon its back, who should hardly have been trusted to ride a fiery creature like that. She was not, indeed, a mere child, being apparently some sixteen or seventeen years of age, but extreme youth was in every feature, and in every line, and I might add beauty also, for never in my life did I behold such vision-like loveliness as hers. The horse, with some sudden fright, must have darted away while she had laid down the rein, for at the time I met her, though not broken, it was floating at his feet, hazarding at every instant to throw him down. She sat firmly in the seat and rode with grace and ease, but she was evidently much frightened, and as soon as she saw someone before her in the lane, she pointed with an eager gesture to the rain, and uttered some words which I did not hear. I easily divined her meaning, however, 
and turning my own horse loose, knowing I could catch him again in a moment, I snatched at the rein of her horse as he passed, ran for a moment by its side, not to check it too sharply, then brought it to a halt and asked her if she would alight. She bowed her head gracefully and smiled most sweetly, replying as soon as she could find breath, with many thanks for the service I had rendered her, that she was not hurt, and but a little frightened, the horse having darted away while she laid down the rein to put on her gloves. She would not alight, she said, but must return quickly to her friends, who would be frightened, and, without saying more, she again gracefully bent her head, turned her horse, and cantered rapidly away. I saw her once afterwards, passing along with a gay cortege, composed of persons that I did not know. As we passed each other, she recognised me instantly, and, with a heightened colour, noticed me by another marked inclination of the head. When I had passed on, I could judge by her own gestures and those of the persons around her, that she was telling them what had occurred, and explaining to them the sign of recognition which she had made. On this second occasion she seemed to my eyes even more lovely than before. Her voice, too, though I had heard it so little, was the most musical that ever spoke to the heart of man, and I pondered and thought over the vision of loveliness that I had just seen, till it took so strong a hold of my heart and my imagination that I could not rest satisfied without seeking to behold it again. I rode through all the country round. I was every day, and almost all day, on horseback. I called at every neighbouring house. I inquired at every place where I was likely to meet with information. But I could never see, or speak with, or hear of that fair creature again, and the time came rapidly on when I was compelled to rejoin the army. I thought of her often, however. I have often thought of her ever since. That lovely face, that sweet voice, will never go from my mind. The reason and fancy combine to make me resolve never to wed any one that I do not think as lovely as herself. Pray what share had reason, demanded the chevalier, in a business altogether so unreasonable. Pooh, my dear Albert, you have worked yourself into a boyish fancy of love, and then have clung to it, I suppose, as the last bit of boyhood left about you. What has reason to do with your seeing a pretty girl in a dark lane, and fancying there was nothing like her upon earth? With that, nothing, certainly, replied the Count, but with my after-determination, much. Before that time, long I had begun to school myself a good deal on account of a propensity, not so much to fall in love, but, as you term it, Louis, to make love to every fair creature I met with. I had found it needful to put some check upon myself, and if an artificial one was to be chosen, I did not see why this should not be selected as well as any other. I determined that, as the knights of old, and our own troubadours too, if you will, and even as by your laughing, I suppose you would have it, excellent Don Quixote himself, that pattern of all true gentlemen, vowed and dedicated themselves to some fair lady, whom they had seen even less frequently than I had her. I determined, I say, that I would encourage this fancy of loving my fair horsewoman, and would employ the image of beauty which imagination, perhaps, had its share in framing, and the fine qualities of the mind and heart, which were shadowed out beneath that lovely exterior, as a test, a touchstone, whereby to try and to correct my feelings towards others, and to approach none with words of love who did not appear to me as beautiful in form as she was, 
and who did not seem at least equal to the standard which fancy had raised up under her image. The matter perhaps was carried farther than I intended. The feeling became more intense than I had expected. For some time I sincerely and truly fancied myself in love, but even since reason has come to my aid in such a matter, and I know how much imagination has to do with the whole, yet from that one circumstance, from that fanciful accident, my standard of perfection in woman has been raised so high that I find none who have attained it, and yet so habitual has it become with me to apply to every one I see, that whenever I am introduced to any beautiful creature to whom I might otherwise become attached, the fanciful image rises up, and the new acquaintance is tried and ever is found wanting. "'Thou art a strange composition, my good friend, the Count,' said the Chevalier, "'but we shall see, now that peace and tranquillity have fallen over the world, whether you can still go on resisting with the courage of a martyr. I don't believe a word of it, although, to say sooth, your quality of heretic is something in your favour. But, in the name of fortune, tell me what are all those loud and tumultuous sounds which are borne by the wind through the open window. Your good people of Monceuil are not in rebellion, I hope. Not that I know of, replied the Count, with a smile at the very idea of such a thing as rebellion under Louis the Fourteenth. But I will call my fellow Riquet, who ought, I think, to have been called Scapin for I am sure Molière must have had a presentiment of the approaching birth of such a scoundrel. He will tell us all about it, for if a thing takes place on the other side of the earth, Riquet knows it all within five minutes after it happens. Before he had well finished speaking, the person he alluded to entered, but Riquet deserves a pause for separate notice. End of chapter 1